Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm going to be speaking today with Dahlia Lithwick, senior legal correspondent at Slate, host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning bi-weekly podcast, and author most recently of Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. And you can learn more at DahliaLithwick.com. I'll spell that for you. It's all one word, D-A-H-L-I-A. L-I-T-H-W-I-C-K, DahliaLithwick.com. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, all based on the belief that I believe we can do better and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com, and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, all one word, TerrenceMcNally.net. Regular listeners to this podcast have heard some of the following before. But I'll keep saying it till it no longer needs to be said. <laughs> what has happened to the Supreme Court? Nine justices with lifetime appointments. And when five of these nine unelected individuals decide something, their five votes count more than either of the other branches, more than the presidents or those of all legislators or the millions of voters who elected those. The makeup of the current Supreme Court is the achieved goal of a decades-long project on the right and in the Republican Party. There's no denying its success owes something to timing and luck. The U.S. holds only one national popular vote, that for president and vice president, and the Republican Party has won that national vote only once since 1988. That's 32 years. Think about that. Yet they've held the presidency 12 of those years and have held Senate majorities for many of those years, though often receiving millions fewer votes than the Democrats in Senate elections. As a result, they dominate the Supreme Court. Since Nixon, Republicans have appointed Since Nixon, Republicans have appointed 15 justices, Democrats 4. Since Reagan, it's 11 to 4, and since the 1988 election of Bush senior, 7 to 4. A president who lost the popular vote can nominate a justice who is confirmed by a Senate that represents a minority of the population. Brett Kavanaugh, for example, was confirmed by senators representing only 44% of the population. Control of the courts allows Republicans to further tilt the electoral playing field and waging judicial politics on a tilted playing field allows Republicans to control the courts. Today's court is a powerful and long-lasting tool of minority rule, removing limits to money and dark money in elections through Citizens United, eliminating Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, their refusal to rule on partisan gerrymandering, the elevation of religious preference over other civil rights, overwhelmingly deciding for business over individuals. All of these overrule the desires of the majority of Americans. Now, I confess this is not always bad, Brown versus Board of Education may not have been the policy of the majority in 1954. 
When the current 6-3 court made their series of radical decisions in late June and early July, the most activist two weeks in my lifetime, they went against the majority of Americans on church and state, guns, environmental protection, the climate crisis, and women's rights. And they don't shy away from the expectation that they're eager to rewrite the law on LGBTQ rights and contraception. And no matter what any of them professed in their confirmation hearings, they've shown a willingness to reverse precedent. And there are some potential rulings this term that go to the very roots of democracy, how our government functions and the balance of power between its three branches. I believe that sustained minority rule not only produces and prolongs unpopular policies, but that it also weakens and sickens democracy, breeding cynicism, resignation, and the sorts of tribal divisions we now face. I realized in preparing for this conversation that my preoccupation with minority rule has had a big blind spot. I talk about the minority of Republicans, of right-wingers, of authoritarian Christians, of the super-wealthy, but given how much of a woman's life has been determined by law and how little women have had to say about those laws for so long reveals another form of minority rule that not only goes back to the founding but lingers to this day. And I will talk with today's guest, Dahlia Lithwick, about the Supreme Court, its last term, some of the most impactful and potentially troubling cases they're taking on this term, and we will talk about her new book, Lady Justice, which is a celebration of the tireless efforts, the legal ingenuity, and the relentless spirit of a number of women lawyers who work to hold the line against the Trump administration and whose contributions often went unrecognized at the time. Dahlia Lithwick is the senior legal correspondent at Slate, host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning bi-weekly podcast about the law, and a regular contributor at MSNBC. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Harper's, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The New Republican Commentary. She won a 2013 National Magazine Award and in 2018 received the American Constitution Society's Progressive Champion Award. She's co-authored three books and is the sole author of her latest, Lady Justice. Welcome, Dahlia Lithwick, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Thank you so much for having me, Terrence. That was a really, really amazing little tee-up uh, of democracy, both broken and working precisely as designed by the framer. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And let me tell listeners, by the way, that we're recording this on Wednesday, December 21st. Um, thank you for that. Um, uh, let me start by saying that I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about here. So can you tell us a bit about how you see your path to the work you do today? And feel free to go way back if you want. Mention mentors, turning points, moments of decision, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I was an English major in college. I loved the printed word as I'm sure you do above all things. And after college, went to law school in no small part because in the interregnum between the two, I had worked at the camp in Connecticut that Paul Newman had founded, the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp for hmm. children with serious blood diseases and cancers. And then I wrote a book about that experience with seven of the campers from the camp and one of the things I realized is that for children with life-threatening issues, a lot of attention was paid to their 
health problems and almost no attention was paid to the legal problems. So whether it was navigating health insurance, whether it was navigating denial of service, uh, it seemed to me that as much as they needed a doctor, they needed a lawyer. And I went to law school partly, uh, and this is where I do have to name drop Paul Newman because I think that experience changed my life. And partly because Marion Wright Edelman, who had founded the Children's Defense Fund, uh, was very, very much at that time working toward thinking about health insurance and children as something fundamental that had to change. And this was obviously well before the Affordable Care Act when we were trying to pick our way through this thicket of how to get health services and healthcare services to those who needed them most and the ways in which the health insurance system was predicated on denial of services. So I spent three years at Stanford Law School, um, graduated having no real sense of what I wanted to do next, um, clerked on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, stayed in Reno, Nevada and did family law for a little while, and then quite literally was ambling across the country trying to figure out what next when Slate Magazine, which had just been founded, and Slate and Salon were, I think, the two first internet magazines uh, in the late 90s, reached out and asked if I wanted to cover the Microsoft trial for them. Mm. Uh, that was the trial of the century at the time. Yeah. Uh, so I covered that for them, and then I stayed on to cover the Supreme Court. So I think, in some sense, the answer is I still have my first real job, which is explained. <laughs> and also that I was so lucky because I came to Supreme Court writing just at the advent of the Internet and could therefore cover it in a way that was a little bit different, a little cheekier, a little bit less oracular than some of the reporting around the court. And maybe the last thing I will say is that at some point early in my Supreme Court career, somebody at the press office at the court said to me, oh, we refer to you as the barbarian at the gate uh, because they thought online reporting was going to Oh, right, everything. right. And here I am now, 23 <laughs> years later, and I'm one of the old guard. I don't know how that happened, but uh, there it is. So I think really I've been just incredibly, incredibly lucky that this thing that I love to do, uh, which is explain the law and think about the law, is the thing that I get paid to do. And maybe the other thing I would say is that, and I know we're going to talk about this, I came to this with such a deep reverence and regard for the law and the rule of law that in some sense some of the destabilizing things that you talked about in your introduction and that you know we're feeling now from the current supreme court have been experienced by me as a court reporter as almost existential because so deep is my faith in and trust in the rule of law that when it feels like it's on wobbly foundations i experience it as an earthquake yeah no it, it i've you know both reading your work and then listening to some of the recent interviews you've done and so on it, you you're hardly the barbarian at the gates you are someone <laughs> who believes in institutions you are someone who is almost reverent about the rule of law I mean, I think that one of the things I can say without a doubt is that a through line in Lady Justice 
is this tension that every single one of the women that I interviewed is sitting really uncomfortably in somewhere on this continuum of what you just said of me, you know, being fundamentally small C conservative and an institutionalist yes. and somebody who trusts in the law. And some of the subjects of the book, I'm thinking of Becca Heller, um, who is the youngest lawyer that I interviewed, who very much is on the other side of the spectrum, who says, look, you know, the law is essentially a, a machine of violence and oppression, always has been, always will be. She says it's it's ridiculous. You know, I'm just using the master's tools to take apart the master's house, right? So she's very cynical. And at the end, other end of the continuum, we have people like Anita Hill um, or Vanita Gupta, who's now at the Justice Department, who I think posit what you just posited, which is you can't have a functioning constitutional democracy without the rule of law. And even when it is terrible and broken and wreaking horrific violence on women and minorities and people of color and um and and, and, and and even the sense of justice perhaps right no i think that's right doing the opposite of justice doing injustice and i think maybe the person who gives voice to where i am on that continuum is anita hill who says without law it's chaos there, there's not a plan b it's right. just violence and chaos and so I think, in some sense, this book is a love letter to the idea of everything that the law could give us, and also a really deep reckoning with the fact that that same thing that can give us equality and democracy and freedom can also take it away. And we learned that in one day when Dobbs came down last year. That's right. And, and you know, I think back to the early establishment and and my sense is that that the founders had this respect for the rule of law which is why there are lifetime appointments versus you know four two four and six term uh of of office and so on and, and yet you know here we, here we sit seeing that that those very uh structures that give the law so much power uh as you say, they they can and have, uh, we've seen in the last year, uh, wreaked, wreaked havoc on people's lives. Let's let's talk about last term. Um, having had time to digest, perhaps, that flurry of radical summer decisions um, that I cite in the introduction, what lessons have you drawn about this court's approach uh, as well, perhaps as its specific rulings, what are we confronting here, and 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 what should we look for moving forward, not just from them, but in response? So, as somebody who's covered the court for two decades, I would say it's both what they're doing that's different and how they're doing it that's different. For most of my career covering a decidedly conservative Supreme Court, I mean, I came on at Bush v. Gore. Mm -hmm. But you would have one or two blockbusters a year, maximum. Last year, and I think this was slightly uh, occluded because Dobbs stole a lot of mm -hmm. attention, but we had eight blockbusters last year. We will have eight again this year. That, that, that if I may cut in for a second, that without Roe would have been the headliner. 
Yeah, any one of them. I mean, the gun decision, Bruin, would have been the case of the year. The EPA case that yes. came down at the end of the term, kneecapping federal agencies' ability to do their jobs, the the praying coach on the 50-yard yes. line. Any one of those cases would have been, you know, five columns in the New York Times. Yeah. But they got they got a little bit pushed out of the limelight because Dobbs took a lot of attention and that's deservedly so Dobbs was an earthquake but so were those others yes and I think that this goes to my second point which is how they're doing it because I think for most of my career even though largely you had a five to four conservative majority at the court you also had the court under the stewardship either of William Rehnquist or John Roberts and they were people who cared a lot about optics who deeply cared that the court not look like a runaway juristocracy that was imposing its will on the people. And so there were tricks, you know, there's ways to do big things in small ways. There's, you know, ways to do things incrementally over a series of cases. And so even though I think it was fair and Richard Posner famously did a study long before um, the three Trump justices came on, where he showed that of the most conservative justices in the past 100 years since the New Deal, five were sitting on the Supreme Court, and that was before uh, uh, Neil Gorsuch was seated. So this was already an extremely conservative court, but it was a court that was very good at managing how it looked. And I think what's changed with the advent of the Amy Coney Barrett era is A, John Roberts has completely lost control mm -hmm. of yes. the conservative majority. He is now, you know, he's a, a potted plant in the corner. He can't <laughs> yeah. control right. what the five justices to his right do, and he can't control how they do it. And that's why you find him in dissent in, you know, a lot of these big cases, including in Dobbs. He in principle, has no problem with reversing Roe v. Wade. What he doesn't like is how the court does it. And so I think that latter point is the thing that has been a little bit lost in the discourse, which is it's not just that the court did six, seven, eight maximalist big swings, reversed precedent, ignored precedent, created some new test, arrogated power unto itself. All those things happen, but they were also doing stuff on what's called the shadow docket, right? Yes. The emergency docket. Late at night, you get a three-line order. You don't even know who signed off on it. That's how SB8, the Texas abortion case, was mm -hmm. initially decided. That's how the eviction moratorium was decided. That's how the COVID cases were decided. So it's the doing of big things, sometimes in the dark, sometimes in secret, sometimes without even knowing the vote count. And then, as I said, over and above all that, it's just the bad behavior. So it's Clarence Thomas sitting on January 6 cases, even though his wife is involved. <laughs> it is Samuel Alito writing Dobbs and then flying to Rome to give a speech where he's kind of spiking the football and risking yeah. his opponents. So it's, it's a whole kind of, I would say, aggregate of shockingly big deal decisions done in a bunch of sideways and roundabout ways, financed by the Federalist Society, largely with dark money. And then it's the in the face of, as you said, plummeting approval ratings in the 20s and 30s, the lowest in the history of polling, doubling down and doing it again. You mentioned a word there that I think surprised me, which was financed by. 
um, the Supreme Court doesn't need to be financed. No one's running for a term. No one's running for an election. What do you mean by that? And I, I have some sense. I've been, you know, I've been reading about this too, but what do you mean by that? This is where the work of Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, has been so invaluable, Terrence. He has been documenting, and a lot of great journalists have been doing this. ProPublica has been doing it. Jane Mayer has been doing it. The New Yorker. But documenting this pipeline of dark money that goes to one of several entities that then goes directly to Leonard Leo, who uh -huh. uh, was heading up uh, the Federalist Society, which is this conservative project that holds itself out as just a debate club, but in fact is taking all of this dark money and pouring it into campaigns, for instance, the campaign to make sure that Merrick Garland never got a hearing, uh, campaigns to suggest that Merrick Garland uh, was somehow opposed to guns when he had actually never ruled on a guns case, mm. uh, but also to shore up people like Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. And, you know, there's there there are donations, you know, in the in the millions and in fact, in the billions that are almost untraceable that go to this project. And when you put that next to efforts by the Kochs to manipulate outcomes at the court, you know, again, uh, uh, when you put it next to the scandal that was reported earlier this month in the New York Times, that there was an entity that set up shop quite literally across the street from the court. And big donors could pay a bunch of money to the Supreme Court Historical Society and get access to justices. And then they could fly those justices to junkets at their vacation homes and lobby them uh, uh, on religious liberty cases. So there's a way in which you're quite right. The court doesn't have a budget, right, by design. Yeah. The Federalist paper says neither the power of the purse nor the sword. But what they seem to have is this huge, huge bunch of coffers of dark money that are slushing around that we know this. This is not a disputed fact. Uh, was all purpose towards selecting the Donald Trump justices at the Supreme Court that was entirely farmed out to the Federalist Society and to uh, the Heritage Foundation and other groups. And there's so much money that was sloshing around to ensure that the right kinds of people were seated on the court to get the right kinds of outcomes. And those are the outcomes you listed at the beginning. That's pro-guns, that's anti-abortion, that's pro-religion, it's pro-big business, it's anti-union, it's anti-regulatory <laughs> state. So in a sense, all their wishes came true, but it came true in no small part because it was being financed by dark money that was going to direct purposive intercession with the kinds of cases the courts heard and the outcomes of those cases. So it sounds like one of the ways is that it has created the pipeline and then Donald Trump was the perfect person who had probably no preferences of his own except that they be uh, pro-business and then gets the opportunity with the Machiavellian cooperation of McConnell to appoint three. But is there something they're also doing in terms of trying to move the public so that which doesn't seem to be working because obviously the approval rating is so low. But is there more to it than that, that it isn't just because because once you've got those three appointments and their lifetime appointments, you can kind of, you know, say we did it. But they're doing more than that, aren't they? 
I think there's a couple things. I think you're quite right. There is the crafting of a pipeline of the kinds of judges who will not be, right? The terror was David Souter, right? We don't want anyone yes. who looks like a Republican and then gets on the court and goes weak-kneed. And, and even Blackman, right? And yeah. Blackman and Anthony Kennedy. Yeah. It was a, a, a grievous disappointment to <laughs> the right on abortion, on LGBTQ rights, um, on religion cases. So they needed to make sure they had someone who would not be the kind of squish that they, by the way, deride John Roberts as that kind of mm, squish sure. because he defected on the Affordable Care Act cases. Right. So I think one thing is to make sure you get someone who is 100% on board, and you're right, this is a, a lengthy process of making sure that you identify those people, you get them clerkships, you make sure that they have the right jobs and that they're pushed forward when it's time uh, to seat them on the federal bench. It's also, and again, Sheldon Whitehouse has done yeoman's work documenting, making sure that the right cases are teed up at the court, making sure that amicus briefs that appear Ooh, right. to be neutral briefs right. are being financed and uh, uh, put forward by the right kinds of people so that the court can rely on those things. And then it's also, and this is probably the most underreported piece of this, Leonard Leo, who was the head of, of this very, very successful decades-long enterprise to capture the court, is also actually made, made the move to get involved in elections, in voting rights, and to make sure that the kinds of projects that exist to constrict the vote are also getting funded and being um, centered by the conservative legal movement. And the reason that's important, that move from doing court packing, right, to make sure that you get mm -hmm. conservatives on the court. And by the way, the same project directed towards state Supreme Court. Sure. Where it's very easy to buy and sell a state Supreme Court. as <laughs> They're a bargain, yes. They're a bargain. It's much easier than buying a legislature and cheaper. But I think that this important move, which is what do you do when in spite of all that, the electorate still has its say, and that's when you start moving toward vote suppression, which is a thing that, that some of these groups are now involved in. Right. And it's when you start moving toward things like the independent state legislature theory, yeah. which I know we're going to talk about, we will. which is a way of sweeping away the popular will in favor of red state legislatures that can just decide elections on their own kind of steam. So all of these things, I know it sounds like you know, and Senator Whitehouse is constantly um, mocked by Ted Cruz and others as being sort of this stringboard theory of, you know, homeland. Mm. But it's all actually part of a huge democracy-busting enterprise. And well, it, you're... the thing that I said at the top, it is, it is the, uh, it's minority rule. Yes. And and it is, it is, you know, I, I have this image uh, when Bush v. Gore happened of the 20th century rising up out of the grave and saying, not so fast, you know, um, it's going to stay my way, even though we don't have the numbers and we don't have the issues. We're not, you know, the public doesn't agree with us. Uh, watch what happens for the next 25 years. Um, you know, and that's what I think we've been living through. Let me let me ask another thing. And this has got, gotten sort of into a direction that I hadn't realized we'd spend as much time on, but that I'm glad we are because I don't hear about it much. Um, when I interviewed Linda Greenhouse prior 
to the Roe v. Wade decision uh, after her her book about the making of this court. Um, she made the point, um, and as I say, before the, the, the raft of radical decisions culminating in Roe v. Wade, that in addition to major decisions that get mainstream media coverage, there are details in less celebrated, less 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 followed opinions that move forward agendas and long-term projects of individual justices. There's a, there's a through line that you can see, and I'm sure you can see, that you do a little something here in a dissent, and you do a little something here in a ruling, and you're paving a way that then makes it easy for the blockbusters you want later. Um, that's something else that is very true of this court, isn't it? And, and, and affects... Um, a couple of the the the, the uh, rulings that are going to come this year: Merrill versus Milligan and Moore versus Harper, and also 303 Creative LLC. But take it from there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such an essential point, and I think that so many of the cases that are now before the court were smoke signal. I don't want to say smoke signal were so many of the cases that are before the court this term came about because they were explicitly invited by the justices, as you say, in a dissent. So when a justice drops a footnote note in a dissent and says, boy, it would be a shame if this kind of plaintiff came to the court next and made the, you know, which is, as you said, 303 creative. And that's the case that has to do with the web designer in Colorado who says, I don't make websites to be clear, but I want to. <laughs> and when I make them to be clear, I want to be able to refuse service to same-sex couples because of my religious values. But to be clear, none of this has happened. Right. But if it happens and I run afoul of the public accommodations law in Colorado, then I don't want to uh, be penalized for it. So this whole thing is a kind of strange form of, of I don't know, fan fiction. There's no case or controversy there's no issue she's not done anything and she's not been punished for not doing right it's it's not about action in the real world it's about a, a legal decision it's such a strange case and that case is invited because the court said in an earlier version of the same case people will remember masterpiece cake shop when we had the dissenters saying things like oh well you know a cake baker it's not clear this is expressive activity but it sure would be good if somebody was doing something that really implicated their first amendment speech rights uh so then you get these cases that are uh, very much invited by the court. Yeah, and and, and for people who don't remember this, that was the case with Citizens United, that it was invited by Roberts. It was invited by Roberts, and it had also, you know, been... This was one of the Roberts... Uh, we talked at the beginning about ways that he could obscure... Mm -hmm. That he was doing big things, and often both in Shelby County and Citizens United, there'd been a kind of smaller iteration of the case already before the court, and it had not uh, uh, done dramatic things. And then the court would say, oh, well, you know, we did this, so now we can do this. And I think that was one of the ways that Roberts managed not doing maximalist things in every case. But I think it's very true, this move you're describing, where you get Justice Thomas or Justice Alito to invite litigants to bring the next case. And we should stop here and say, let's be very clear that in the Dobbs decision overturning Roe, Justice Thomas 
wrote, here's what I'm coming for next. And it was marriage equality. Yep. It was contraception. Uh, it was gay rights generally. So he's literally saying the quiet part out loud yes. there, where he's saying, you know, bring me now a challenge to Griswold versus Connecticut, the birth control case. But the other thing that I think is really important, and this might have been something that materialized a little bit after you talked to Linda, but because we have cases now where there no, are no case and controversy, there's not an issue. The court is taking it at the earliest stages, including 303 Creative, where nothing has yet happened. It allows the justices to fill in their own narrative about what they think and feel. And we really saw that in 303 Creative, where the court was just sort of spitballing about the kinds of stuff that would violate their own, you know, religious convictions if they were forced to do it. And um, Sherilyn Eiffel, who is the head of the Legal Defense Fund, the NAACP mm -hmm. Legal Defense Fund, was on my podcast recently making this point really explicitly that one of the things that we are allowing to happen at the court is not just, as you said, the justices in dissent leaving breadcrumbs saying, you know, come mm -hmm. knock on my door with this case. Yeah but also taking cases that are not appropriately before the court and then inventing, sort of backfilling a narrative that then becomes enshrined in the doctrine. And she, her point, and this was really arresting to me, was that we in the legal profession are allowing that to happen, allowing these bare bones cases that don't actually have a conflict yet to become enshrined in the law as though the conflict has already happened. And I hadn't really thought about how dangerous that was until she told me. I mean, my head is sort of exploding, even though I knew this is all we're going <laughs> this is what we're going to talk about. It's still, I mean, this whole notion actually, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but this whole notion of justices and groups of justices having an agenda that they're working at step by step with the various moves that we've talked about, including this latest one you're talking about, which is that taking almost hypotheticals or things so early that, that you don't have to mess around. The, the arguments don't become about the facts of the case. Um, I don't remember that prior to the last few years, this whole notion of, you know, what is Stephen's agenda? What is, do you know what I'm saying? Well, I think, yeah, you're, what you're saying, it maps perfectly onto the problem, which is that the Supreme Court, for the first time in history, uh, every single Republican was appointed by a Republican, every Democrat was appointed by a Democrat. Like, that's not how the court was. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, historically, we had Justice Blackman, we had Justice Warren, you know, we've had Justice Kennedy, Justice Souter, lots and lots of justices who evolved and changed mm. when they got on the bench. Yes. And, you know, Clarence Thomas famously said, I'm not evolving, and he hasn't <laughs> evolved. Um, I think that it is now prized. It is a singular virtue that you come on completely indoctrinated and you stay that way. Mm. So that's part of it. I also think that this whole idea of you know, confirmation hearings that last five days and they're televised gavel to gavel and everybody's got an opinion and a vote and, you know, the Senate Judiciary Committee are using them entirely to perform virtue mm -hmm. for their mm -hmm. constituent. This is all new, right? I mean, uh, it used to be the case until Sandra Day O'Connor, they weren't televised. Hearings used to take three hours. Uh, often justices didn't show up to their oh my own God. hearings. 
Yeah, most justices didn't. I mean, it was just done in two hours pro forma. There wasn't this, you know, deep pledging of public fealty to your team that is now every single hearing mm -hmm. is that. And so I think it's a little bit of a cart horse question, and I can't precisely say that the deep politicization and polarization and the money that is poured into confirmation hearings in, in the 20th century, uh, the late 20th century, is what so corroded the court, or whether the court was always going to become, you know, and this goes back to the famous Lewis Powell memo, you know, yep. that he wrote when he was still a, a lawyer for big business about capturing the court long before he was seated on the court. So whether it is that the court was seen as the crown jewel in a political system, or that the political system turned you know, uh, uh, the court into some uh, sort of pale shadow of what it was. Mm -hmm. I, I can't do the causation yeah. for you, but right. what I can say is without a doubt, the Supreme Court as currently constituted is the most partisan political institution that we keep covering as though it's an oracle. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. As, as, one, one thing Linda had said in that interview also that I had a quote here was, in the past there have been ideological surprises on the Supreme Court. We don't expect that anymore. Um, let me tell people this is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally speaking with Dahlia Lithwick, senior legal correspondent at Slate, host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning bi-weekly podcast, and author most recently of Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. You can learn more at DahliaLithwick.com. Um, I am looking at the time and realizing that my initial plan to talk about... Um, <laughs> The, the, the past, the current decisions, and Lady Justice is fast running away, which means one thing, I would love to do this again soon. Um, but let's just talk, let's jump then, because I think we framed some of these decisions in sort of this bigger contextual conversation we've had. But I think we have to talk about Moore versus Harper. Um, this is the, uh, the state legislature having power uh, that cannot be constrained by a governor, by their own state Supreme Court, by anything. Um, talk about uh, uh, what the meaning of that is and what the arguments we saw might lead us to believe where we're, he where we're headed. This was, I think, the single most important case of the term, and this isn't a term, as we said, where affirmative action is on the chopping block, the Indian Child Welfare Act is on the chopping block, uh, you know, uh, there's a racial gerrymander case, as you said, uh, out of Alabama that uh, questions whether Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. That's right. We, we, Shelby took away Section 5. Now, this uh, Merrill versus Milligan seems to be aimed at Section 2. Right. What, what, what's left of the Voting Rights Act. So, so let's be clear, this is another incredibly consequential term. And amongst all of that and more, uh, we have this independent state legislature case. So this arises out of a North Carolina gerrymander. Uh, the North Carolina state legislature uh, essentially gerrymandered the districts, the electoral districts, so that in a state that was essentially 50-50 Democrat-Republicans, 10 of the 14 seats would go to Republicans. That map went to the state Supreme Court that said this is an unlawful gerrymander under the state constitution. 
And rather than redraw the map, the legislature raced this case to the Supreme Court under this theory, the independent state legislature theory, that the state courts, the state Supreme Court, violates the federal constitution when it interprets the state statutes uh, to uh, pass on election procedures. So essentially they are saying that state legislatures have what's known as plenary, which means absolutely unfettered power to set every aspect of state election law that can include not just blessing a gerrymander, it can include shutting polling places on Sunday, doing away with mail-in voting, whatever it wants to do uh, to suppress the vote and to enshrine its own uh, legislative dominance, and that no state Supreme Court can review that under the state constitution. And, and let me uh, ask a quick question. And they draw on uh, my understanding a line in the federal constitution to to from which they take all of this as as the meaning of that line, correct? That's exactly right. They are drawing on the elections clause which says that the states shall determine the time, place and manner of congressional elections and they take that to mean everything. The whole shooting match and also to mean that it's unreviewable by any state court under the state constitution. Right. In other words, if the federal constitution didn't mention that it was reviewable, didn't mention that a state court might have something to say about this, etc., then anything that wasn't mentioned in that line doesn't exist. And that line is the sole rule about elections within states. This is also, by the way, was Eastman's premise for the fraud contentions in the 2020 election, correct? Yeah, so there's two places in the federal constitution. One we just talked about, which is the elections clause. The other is the presidential electors clause. Mm, right. And that is the clause you're talking about. That's the one where John Eastman and Donald Trump were calling around to Georgia and Pennsylvania and saying, we don't care who the, the electors are who are lawfully uh, seated, just make up a slate of fake electors because um, state legislatures have, again, unfettered control control over who that is. So you can just hand us uh, a page. It doesn't matter who's on it. So this that second thing, the presidential electors clause was actually not an issue in uh, Moore v. Harper, mm -hmm. because this really was just about this North Carolina gerrymander. Right. But you're exactly right that the principle, if it is in fact the case, that the federal constitution gives plenary power for legislatures to do whatever they want in the realm of elections. It is absolutely the case that the thing that John Eastman was convinced he could do and that Donald Trump could lawfully do, which is call Georgia and say, just give me a couple yeah. thousand more votes or uh, just uh, hand me a list of fake electors. It doesn't matter because the legislature uh, determines that. You're exactly right that the 2024 election, if it was conducted under that theory of independent state legislatures, Donald Trump would have won. Right. Now, you said 2024. And I think if it was a Freudian slip, it actually says that depending on how the Supreme Court rules on Moore versus Harper, that that uh, scary scenario actually would be the case in 2024. 
that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying it did, it could not have happened in 2020, which right. is why um, Michael Ludig and Vice President Pence and everybody yeah. who actually understood the Constitution said this is a fanciful notion that's never been tried. But 2024, because if the track is laid to yeah. make it constitutional and lawful, then I fear that... <laughs> presidential candidate Donald Trump in 2024 asking for the same things could get them if the Supreme Court blesses the idea of this doctrine. Okay. Uh, that's the scary <laughs> one. That's the scariest that's scary. one. And some people seem to think, and I don't quite understand this, so clarify this for me, that if the state legislatures got this ruling in their favor, that it might mean they could do anything. It seems to me that the, the points they're drawing from the federal constitution refer only to elections. I think that it, because it's the time, place, and manner of elections, I think that the argument is it doesn't stop at gerrymanders. It could include vast vote suppression. It could include shortening the period. But only election-related things. It doesn't mean the state legislature could do something about guns or something about oh, yeah, labor. Yeah, no, no. This is It is clearly rooted in the elections clauses, yeah. so I think you're right. Yeah. I would also say one other thing. One thing that was conceded very quickly by the lawyers for North Carolina at Oral argument in this case was that one of the sort of maximalist scare scenarios, which is that there's nothing a governor could do that, you know, that 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 this plenary power uh, includes the governor has no check. They conceded that's not correct. Oh. So there were scary, scary versions of this uh, up to and including, as you say, whether you could really uh, it could implicate ballots, uh, um, slates of fake electors. That stuff, I think, was not uh, on the table at argument, and the North Carolina lawyer backed off some of the truly wackadoo stuff that we were afraid of. But I think this is maybe a good place to go back to your original framing, which is we are now in this strange posture when if the court doesn't do the 10 out of 10, they only do the 8 out of 10, we all think they've taken a moderate position. <laughs> this doctrine is insane. It has no historical rooting no oh, textual right. rooting i hear what you're and saying yes oh look they didn't do they didn't do armageddon they just did you know yeah and and they get credit for it. the other thing i was thinking as you were speaking dahlia was that as we've seen in so many other contexts this would just be a step and that crazier step would be would show up a year or two from now i think that's the fear the fear is once the court signs off on this it really does open the door for uh, the maximalist thing in two years. And again, a lot of what is scary about, I mean, we talked about the fact that in a lot of these cases, there's no record, there's no trial record. You know, one of the things Sherilyn Eiffel mentioned in my conversation with her was that in the affirmative action cases, there was no trial record of discrimination against Asian students and the justices kept insisting it was in the record when it wasn't, right? So making up your own facts. Wow. But one of the things that is really scary, in addition to making up your own facts, is that the place that is cited for the principle that there is an independent state legislature theory is a Rehnquist opinion from Bush v. Gore that got two other votes. It is not the majority opinion of Bush v. Gore. It is not the holding of the case. It was Rehnquist writing for himself, Clarence Thomas and uh, Antonin Scalia. And that whimsical idea that he floated, hey, maybe you know state legislatures do have unreviewable, unchecked power, 
with its three votes is now held out as though it's the law. Oh my and god. And so when we're talking about the slippage that we're seeing, you know, and we've we've checked a bunch of it, one piece of slippage is to continue to cite to that as though it is a principled ruling of the court rather than a minority opinion that only got two votes. Right, which goes back to some of that stuff we've talked about in the middle of this conversation of that there there's a there's a plan here that unless you're following it really closely, um you might not see. Um, let me just say one other thing that it's that, that and then we'll get to the book um, that that I uh, one or two other things that I see in the way that they are ruling is that this willingness to overturn precedent in case after case, um, the EPA case Roe, it, it would be the case in the students for fair admission versus Harvard, etc. That's happened in the past, but that it just is kind of a rule of the way they they go about things is is new isn't it yeah i mean i think and you made this point in your introduction and it's really important right brown was an overturning of precedent right so was obergefell the marriage equality case uh explicitly said you know we were wrong in our earlier holdings about lgbtq rights and we were wrong and we're getting it right so we have to be really careful when we say the court needs to hew to precedent at all times. That's Mm -hmm. clearly wrong. That's why we have a court. But there are explicit rules that guide how the court should deal with precedent. And there's a whole bunch of sort of boxes you tick. And, you know, the boxes include, you know, how old the case is and whether the public has what's called a reliance interest in it, right? Whether the public has come to believe uh, that their own sense of their ordered lives and dignity relies on that holding. What was interesting in the cases where the court either expressly overturned precedent, like it did in Dobbs, or sort of kicked the legs out of precedent and stepped around it the way they did um, in some of the religion cases is the complete cavalier refusal to really do anything but pay lip service to that. And so the best example I can give is, you know, for for 50 years, millions and millions of people have organized their reproductive lives around the right to an abortion and their economic lives and justice alito just makes short work of it in dobbs he He gives it like a sentence right he just doesn't care that there is a reliance interest it's not material to him and so i think one of the things that you know in addition to the claim which is correct that this is the first time ever that the court overturns precedent in order to constrict rather than uh, 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 provide more rights to people. So that's one thing. But the other thing is the absolute unwillingness to look at the actual harms caused. Mm-hmm. And that is different. Uh, and so I think that there's a real, it's not just the sort of cavalier. And also, I, I, I guess I would say this uh, about Dobbs and precedent. And this, again, goes to your initial really elegant framing of the court as an engine of minority rule. But Justice Alito, who gleefully writes, you know, women are not without electoral power, like you can go to the ballot box and fix this, is the same Justice Alito who's dismantling the Voting Rights Act. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you can go to the the ballot box, but go quickly because... (laughs) You may not be able to soon. Um, okay, let's shift to the book. You, The book is Lady Justice, um, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. Um, 
I, I will ask you a question which I love to ask authors, which is what's the first itch you scratched? What was that moment when you said, I got to do this? I was really worried uh, in the last few years of um, the Obama administration, the beginning of the Trump administration, about the hagiography around Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I, I felt that it very much got in the way of meaningful activism, that it's just not enough to get a tote bag and the earrings and think that you are doing social justice work. And that Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself, and I was lucky enough, Terrence, to get the last in-person interview with her at wow. the Supreme Court right before it closed for COVID. And she, in every interview, every interaction I had with her, would be at pains to say, I stand on the shoulders of all these people whose names you do not know. And then she would reel them off. And by the way, one of them was Polly Murray, who's sure. the subject of the introduction of the book, because Polly Murray is a social justice, gender justice warrior, racial justice warrior, who nobody's ever heard of. And so I think the itch that I was scratching a little bit was when everybody sort of fell into mourning after Justice Ginsburg died. And to be sure, you know, she, she paved the way for everything uh, in terms of gender freedom and equality in the United States. But she did so with an army. Mm -hmm. And she was mindful of that. And so I wanted to think about the fact that what I call these Ruth Baby Ginsburgs are all around us, everywhere, doing exactly what she did at the ACLU Women's Rights Project and what she later did at the court. And that to import all of our hopes and dreams into one person who's going to save us while we buy the tote bag is not, in fact, the work of democracy. <laughs> and it's not even the legacy that RBG would have wanted for herself. And so I think the itch that I was scratching was the world was in mourning for this hero who was indeed a hero. But what I wanted to say is she's everywhere. She's working on, you know, uh, democracy reform. She's knocking on doors. She's postcarding. She is, you know, getting abortion on the ballot in Michigan. And to try to make an argument that that's how democracy has always worked from the ground up. And that that is how I think in the Trump years, democracy continued to survive from the ground up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And let me just tell people about Polly Murray, uh, which is there was a documentary in 2021. My name is Polly Murray. And an interview which I've done, which I have not posted yet, with James Gaines regarding a book called The 50s, an underground history, in which he singles out a number of courageous individuals who blazed the trails that later became the movements of the 60s. And Pauli Murray is definitely uh, one of these. So for those of you who aren't aware of her yet, um, she's, she's one of those unsung heroes uh, that laid the groundwork for Brown versus Board of Education, as well as Ruth Bader Ginsburg's work. Um, since we have really about two minutes left for you, <laughs> I'll, and, and as I said, I would love to get you back and go deeper into, into this stuff, but I'll, I'll, instead of me asking questions, just what do you want people to realize they'll get when they look into this book? I think that right what, where we started this conversation about Dobbs and women, 
is what I want people to sit with, which is a lot of us, including myself, took for granted that there was this inexorable progression in the law mm. towards equality and dignity and respect and, uh, you know, that the arc of the moral universe was itself bending itself magically toward justice. And that we could see it. And I think Dobbs was, a, and it was coming, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we thought it was coming. Um, and we woke up on the morning that Dobbs came down and said, you know, women are going to be in jail. Women are in jail now in Alabama, in Oklahoma, for uh, miscarriages, for terminating pregnancy. The same machinery of the law that was supposed to make us equal is making us now powerless and vulnerable. And what I want people to realize is how thin that seam is between those two things, that you can blink and by the way, if you're a person of color driving in the South, you have long known this, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that the, the cop who pulls you over uh, for a broken taillight is using the machinery of the law not to give you dignity and equality, but to harm you. And what I want to say is that that is not in the hands of RBG or the Supreme Court or Joe Biden. That is in our hands. It has ever been thus that the law is both a weapon and a tool. And I think the women in this book, for me, blaze a trail toward using it as a tool of justice with all the ambivalence you and I talked about at the beginning, but understanding there's no plan B. Plan B is the right. enemy. Right. And so I think we have to buy in. We have to buy into all the ways. And it's not just winning court cases. It's fixing democracy. It's fixing the Senate. It's doing away with the Electoral College. It's a lot. But I think that if we buy into the idea that we have a role to play, in making sure that the machinery of law is not weaponized to hurt people, but weaponized to give us dignity and equality, I think we could see the end of the moral arc of the moral universe at a better place and not a worse place. And one other thing I've heard you say is, at the, and recognize our victories, recognize the little triumphs along the way uh, as, as, this, as, as we move this forward. Absolutely. We forget and one of the reasons it's fun to, to talk about the book is that people will then say, God, I forgot how awful the travel ban was. Like, oh, my God, yes. there was a guy who was tracking the menstrual cycles of girls in, you know, migrant sh detention shelters in Texas. God, I've repressed all this. It was awful. But those people were vanquished. And that's by, because lawyers did, you know, the, the Nazis and white supremacists who marched in my hometown of Charlottesville vanquished in a court. And that didn't just happen. That happened because these gladiators did it. And they won a lot. And I think we should celebrate that, too. Very good. This has gone so quickly. And there's so much, you know, to talk about. And so much, because as we set up at the start and as has been threaded through this completely, um, this is right now, to some extent, this is where the rubber meets the road and people have to pay attention and they hopefully pay attention with an eye towards claiming the victories and fighting the fight. Again, the book is Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. You can learn more at dahlialithwick.com, D-A-H-L-I-A-L-I-T-H-W-I-C-K, all one word, dahlialithwick.com. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, or a world that just might work.com. They're the same website. 
if you want to receive a weekly email telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and usually links to 10 or 15 articles that flesh out the conversation, you can email me at temcnally at mac.com, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y at M-A-C.com, or you can sign up at my site. You can also sign up at most major podcast sites to subscribe to the podcast. Um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc., etc. And there you'll find um, archives that include Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer. You can also follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Keanu Williams in Productions, George Vasilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all, you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. And finally, thank you, Dolly Lithwick, and keep up your good work. Thank you so much for having me, and I wish you a happy and democratic and well-functioning 2023. <laughs> you too. Thank you, Dahlia.